Welcome, this is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 4th. I'm Anastasia Glova, your host. At yesterday's forum, Clint Bolick presented his new book, David's Hammer, The Case for an Activist Judiciary, published by the Cato Institute. Clint is the director of Goldwater Institute's Center for Constitutional Litigation and co-founder of the Institute for Justice. Today I speak with him about his unconventional views on what many people pejoratively dismiss as legislating from the bench. First, let's address how you define judicial activism, especially as opposed to judicial review. Judicial activism is the act of the courts striking down laws that are perceived to be unconstitutional. And thus defined, it's neither a negative or a positive term, but I think that there's not nearly enough judicial activism defined in that fashion. Now for the theme of your book, you argue that judicial activism is a role the court exercises not too much, but far too little as opposed to conventional wisdom. Why do you say that? I believe that courts need to be far more active in striking down laws because government is proliferating like crazy at every level, both executive and legislative, and our rights are falling by the wayside, oftentimes by unelected government officials who are regulating everything about our lives from schools to property to taxes and so forth. And the judiciary is the only branch of government that is capable of standing up for the rights of the individual against the rights of special interests and the powers of government. But look at just two cases, Plessy v. Ferguson and the Korematsu case that had to do with Japanese internment during World War II. Wouldn't you agree that in these two cases the court acted in an unacceptably activist way? Well, in those two cases, upholding separate but equal laws and upholding the internment of Japanese citizens, the courts were not too activist. They were not activist enough. These were outrageous deprivations of individual liberty, and the courts deferred to the governmental entities that created these laws. This is exactly the type of example that I I like to cite when saying that we don't have too much judicial activism, we have too little. That's exactly where courts ought to come in and strike down laws to uphold individual liberty. So far you've argued that courts are not sufficiently activists when they are too deferential to bureaucrats and to Congress at the expense of individual rights. But I'm not sure that this applies to the recent ruling in Massachusetts v. EPA in which the court blatantly ignored Congress's decisions about the Kyoto Protocol. What I refer to as judicial lawlessness, which is totally illegitimate, is when courts take on legislative or executive powers. And in the EPA case, the court took on the legislative power. It decided that global warming was a bad thing and that the EPA ought to regulate against it even though that was not the law of the land. But the Supreme Court decreed that the EPA do something about global warming. That is a case of a court acting in an improper fashion because it took on the power of the legislative body. But what about in cases of uncertainty, like Roe v. Wade, for example? Shouldn't the court defer and practice humility in such instances? In a close case, I believe that courts ought to indulge a presumption in favor of liberty rather than a presumption in favor of government power. Our Constitution was designed to give government limited powers and to safeguard individual rights. And it's very hard to see where the framers of our Constitution would have come up with a presumption in favor of the legitimacy of government power when that power 
injures the rights of individuals. So that, I think, is one of the major things that courts need to do, is to begin their inquiries with a presumption in favor of liberty. One of the other panelists today, Jeffrey Rosen, argued that most of the advances for individual liberty have actually come from the other two branches and not from activist judges. What do you say to that? I think that it is totally incorrect to say that Congress and the president have good records in protecting liberty. I mean, just look around at the Patriot Act, segregation laws, and so forth. Government officials have a natural tendency to expand their power and to press it to the outermost limits and beyond. Only the courts have really the nature of striking down laws of holding governmental entities to their intended constitutional limits. In your comments, you referred frequently to the case of Juanita Swedenberg in making your argument in favor of judicial activism. Can you tell me about this case? Juanita Swedenberg is a farmer in Virginia who grows grapes and makes wine, and she wanted to sell it to people outside her state. But about two-thirds of the states had protectionist laws that were designed to prop up the liquor distributor industry, and they forbade the direct interstate shipment of wine. It was an issue as old as our republic itself, because one of the reasons why we have a constitution is to protect against protectionist trade barriers like the ones that Mrs. Swedenberg encountered. And with the internet, there are more ways for consumers to transact directly with producers without the need for a middleman. But the empire struck back, and they tenaciously resisted this lawsuit, and eventually the U.S. Supreme Court upheld uh, Mrs. Swedenberg's right to sell wine directly to people outside of her state of Virginia in what is a tremendous vindication of the founding principles on which our Constitution is based. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.